Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Diane Ehrensaft about her new book, published in 2016 by The Experiment, entitled The Gender-Creative Child, Pathways for Nurturing and Supporting Children Who Live Outside Gender Boxes. Diane Ehrensaft is a developmental and clinical psychologist with over 30 years' experience working with gender nonconforming children and their families, She's also Director of Mental Health of the Child and Adolescent Gender Center and the Chief Psychologist at their clinic at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital. And she's here to talk with us about best practices for raising and treating children who she calls gender-creative children. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. So let's start at the beginning. How did you come to write this book? I'm going to start at the last part of the beginning, which is in about 2013, when my publisher at The Experiment, Matthew Laurie, contacted me and he said, you know what, the book we published in 2011, Gender Born, Gender Made, is actually quickly becoming out of date because there's such a sea change and everything happening around children and gender. So what do you think? We could do two things. We could revise. You could do just some revisions, some updating on gender-born, gender-made. Or you could write a new book. So I, at the time, thought about it, and I thought, it is going to be so hard to revise that book because so much is happening that I thought it would be much easier just to start all over with the new volume picking up from what's happened since I wrote Gender Born, Gender Made. So that's what I decided. A third of the way through, I thought, what a fool I was. Do you know how much easier it would have been to revise an existing book (laughs) and update it than to write a whole new volume? By the end of the book, I was so happy I did it. This was my favorite book that I've written. I, um, looking back at it, it was actually a very enjoyable experience. I learned so much just by writing it. Because of everything that's the that's the most immediate beginning of how I came to write this book. Do you feel a personal connection with the transgender or gender creative community? I feel a total personal and professional connection to this community, and I will trace it back to I went to college in the 1960s. I became a feminist. I was very involved in the feminist movement. At that time, we were focusing on the sexism of gender and the inequality between men and women and the strength of women. And I did my dissertation on uh, gender socialization, which was then called sex role socialization in preschool age children. I went on to study shared parenting to see whether men and women could indeed share parenting. While I was in the midst of studying shared parenting, I was a parent. 
I was a sharing parent, uh, raising two children. Uh, I have an older daughter, a younger son, and I had two children who loved tutus and two children who would never play with a dump truck. One was a girl, one was a boy. So in the 1970s, I was raising a gender-creative little boy and trying to give him the room to be who he was, which was not so easy at the time. So my personal connection is that I am a parent. And I am a parent of a gender-creative child who grew up to be a wonderful gay man who's now turning 40 and is still absolutely committed to himself to creating a gender-creative world in the work that he does in New York City. So I feel that I come at it professionally, I come at it politically, and I come at it most importantly personally. Well, and therefore connected to the community. That's great. And I, I want to delve then right into what what is a gender creative child, but before we do that, I feel like I need to ask you, what is gender? What is gender is probably like asking what does God look like? <laughs> <laughs> it is such a simple question and such a complex answer. I would say at the end of the day, nobody's sure, but this is what we seem to know about gender. Number one, that we cannot find a culture throughout the world that doesn't have some sense of gender. So I've tried anthropologically to look around the world and find the genderless culture. It doesn't exist. How people organize gender varies widely from culture to culture. And sometimes we think that the Western model is the universal model. Au contraire, it's the Western model. Uh So gender has two major components to it. Who you know yourself to be as male, female, or other, and there are many others now that we are discovering, and how you do your gender, how you uh, carry your gender into the world. So we've got gender identity and gender expressions. Those are the two key components of what is gender. They often get conflated, and they often get confused with sexuality. So those are two different developmental tracks. But, for example, typically... When you see a little three-year-old boy wearing a tutu, the first reaction people have is, he's probably going to be gay. Might be, but he might be transgender, and he might be a not-transgender little boy who loves dresses. He might be many different things, but we make assumptions that aren't true. So that little boy wearing the tutu is saying something about gender and nothing yet about sexuality. And, and I want to make sure to highlight this point about the difference between gender identity and gender expression because it's important. Are you saying that such a little boy wearing tutus, that that wearing of the tutus is, is his gender expression, but that his gender identity need not be dictated by his gender expression, that there are still lots of possibilities for what might be his gender identity? I'm saying exactly that, uh, that... They converge, but they also have to be kept separate. And at the end of the day, we want to know two things in terms of what's your gender. Is how do you identify yourself? That's internal, not external. And we want to know, and how do you put that together with how you want to be in the world around your gender? And there's absolutely multiplicity, if not an infinity 
infinite variety of ways that you could be about that gender you identify as being. So those are the two questions we want to get answered to get particularly a child's gender and focus. And we also want to create pathways to make sure that there's no roadblocks to that child being able to put together their unique gender identity, their unique gender expressions. I want to follow up on your point about how the gender binary might be somewhat specific to Western culture, because you mentioned in your book, and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, the Hijra, the third gender people of India. Clearly, other cultures have historically recognized gender as broader or more complex than can be captured by a binary, with India as just one example. So then why do you think it is that, at least in the United States, that we're sort of late to the gender infinity party? I think Western culture in the United States, and certainly throughout Europe as well, is late to the gender infinity party, because somewhere along the line, historically, modernity was believed to be at a higher level than non-modern cultures. And because of religious reasons and also social constructions, there were then a division between the genders that were created. There were socialist constructs created, and they have infused Western social structures, Western religious practices, Western political entities ever since. So not only are we late to the game, let's remember that in our own country, in the United States, we had a thriving culture with great acceptance for gender nonconforming, transgender, gender fluid people, and that was Native American culture. What did we do? We either killed them all off or force them out of their gender fluidity. So we're not only late to the game, we decimated the origins of gender infinity or gender fluidity. However, I would say an amazing thing is happening right now in Western culture. Our youth will have none of it. So they are really, I think, being the revolutionaries here in cracking open the exploration of gender and challenging the notion of gender in two boxes. So we kind of set ourselves back, but we're also now taking the moment to move forward. I believe we are definitely taking the moment to move forward, but also to get pushed forward. Yes. Not just by the youth, but by uh, transgender activists, by uh, parents uh, who are raising gender-creative children, and also by professionals who have come together to organize uh, practices and um, research publications and public advocacy around the need to relearn gender and give space for multiple genders. One of the things that I enjoy about your book and that I think makes it so accessible is that you use a lot of metaphors. And one of the most important ones, I think, is that you capture this sea change through the, meta- the metaphor of gender being a bedrock and a paradigm shift towards gender more as a moving boulder or moving boulders in plural. Can you translate this metaphor, what you mean by it? Okay, so gender, uh, bedrock to moving boulders. We were all raised in a culture, and it's still there strongly, that... Who you are, male or female, is absolutely the launching pad for life. And 
you can even find out now before you're born. Your parents can find out which one you are. And this is why so many people say before a baby's born, do you know, is it a boy or a girl? And, and there's no person yet, but we're already wanting to categorize that person. So we have counted and relied on gender as bedrock, that there are two classes of people, males and females, and it's very important to both know who they are and which bathroom they should go to, given recent social events. And that has stayed in place for many centuries. Now in the 21st century, we've essentially taken a pickaxe to the bedrock, and there's been an explosion where all of a sudden there's moving boulders. And we have little children saying, you know what, guys, you got it wrong. I'm not the gender you think I am. I'm a different gender. We have medical practices that actually allow people to shift their gender, not just in who they think they are, but in terms of their body and their body presentation. And we have social movements, uh, certainly embedded in feminist psychoanalysis right there about the multiplicity of gender. So all of a sudden, there's no more bedrock, which makes people very anxious. So things are moving around. They haven't settled yet. And as they move around, what we see is a lot of excitement. Because it's, it's exciting. If anybody's um, a hiker and you've ever gone across moving boulders, it's scary, but really exciting. But for some people, they look at the moving boulders and say, forget it. <laughs> Just give me the land where it's safe. So this is what's happening right now. And it's a big paradigm shift. Yeah, and just we're all adjusting to it. And I want to make sure the point's not lost that, and I think this is, tell me if this is what you mean to capture by moving boulders, the moving part, is it's not just that our ideas about gender are changing, but that one of the ideas that needs to change about gender is that it doesn't change because it does. And because a person's gender identity can be one thing at one stage of their life and maybe a different thing at, a, at another stage of their life. Am I capturing your idea? You're capturing the idea, but I want to move it away from the, uh, the metaphor of moving boulders um, to a different metaphor, which is a flowing stream. So what I learned in my training was that your gender should be fixed by age six. You should know that what your gender is. You should know how to do it. And you should understand there's no backseas and more in the gender you've had to give up in your magical thinking of earlier childhood. And I will add one piece that I learned, and you should be straight. Uh -huh. So by then it's all set and you, you know, kind of have a, a successful resolution of your edible phase and you're all set. Now, that theory is not holding up in practice at all. And one main reason is gender is not fixed at age six. Gender is a lifelong process. And whereas some people may know at age six, and that will be who they are the rest of their lives, another person may discover at age 70 that the gender they've been living with has never been authentic, and indeed they're another gender. And they may take steps accordingly, to align themselves with the gender they've discovered at age 70. They might discover it at age 12. They might know it by 18 months. But it's mostly to say the gender is a lifelong, ongoing developmental process rather than a fixed stage that where you're cooked and done mm -hmm. at age six. So that's why I say flowing stream 
because it's not really, sometimes it can cascade and bump against each other, but we want it to flow. So let's talk a little bit then about how the mental health field has historically thought about gender and particularly about who you term gender creative children. The DSM-5 came out a few years ago, and when it did, they replaced gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria. Can you tell us what this means and why in the book you say that this is more palatable but still problematic? So we, we used to have in the DSM-4 gender identity disorder. It's a disease. It's a disorder. And isn't it interesting that it showed up in the DSM just as homosexuality was pulled out? Huh. A sneaky substitution. So that we could still work with young children to help avoid either a homosexual, quote-unquote, or transgender outcome by identifying kids who were not settled in the gender that matched the sex on the birth certificate, considered an aberration. Fortunately, that got thrown out, but what was kept in place was the new diagnosis, gender dysphoria, of somebody who's feeling stress or distress about the gender they're living in. There has been tremendous controversy about this diagnosis as well, and it goes like this. If, if in this moving boulder, sea change shift in our sense of gender, gender variations are normal rather than pathological, why should we have a mental health psychiatric diagnosis for something related to gender? And if there is stress, is that an individual problem or is that because of the pathology of the culture that doesn't leave space for people to be who they are? In which case, we should have a diagnosis for the culture, not for the child. So the whole notion that's at stake right now is very much what happened around homosexuality. Is it a variation uh, of human life or is it something to be treated? And as long as we, I believe, as long as we have a gender diagnosis in the books, we are sending messages that there's still something awry when you question your gender and that we ought to fix it in some way. That's a dangerous trope within the mental health field because I would say when it comes to gender, particularly around children but adults as well, and gender variations, it's, it's now the best of worlds and the worst of worlds. There are many professionals who are there to support people finding their way and making sure that people are stable, healthy, and recognized for who they are. But that's to be balanced against people who think there really is something awry when somebody questions their gender and doesn't live with bedrock. So let's see if we can fix it in some way. This makes me wonder then how you handle this issue in your own practice. In particular, I'm wondering if you ever use the terms gender dysphoria or something like that when you're talking with your clients, your, with children, with parents. I basically try not to use a term that matches the psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, and I try not to use the diagnosis whenever I cannot use it. Because really, when a child's coming to you or an adult because they're stressed about gender, they have anxiety, they have depression, uh, they might, some little kids might have some conduct problems. So we can use those. 
as the problems they're dealing with. And those are often secondary to not having space to live in their authentic gender or they're working on sorting out their gender or somebody's really being negative, harsh, punitive, even abusive about their gender. So in the same way, we don't have a diagnosis for children of divorce, but they often have stresses. We treat them, and if they need a diagnosis for insurance companies, we've got it. So usually I will just try and talk the narrative. Uh, if I'm working with a child, if I'm working with a family, about what they're dealing with, no diagnosis. Sometimes I have to use the diagnosis for them to get reimbursed. Uh, and I choke every time I write it down. We have to use it sometimes at the clinic. Uh, and so I have to be strategic, but I'm always unsettled every time I use it. I, I've never had a child or youth come to me and say, could you give me that diagnosis? I really want it. Huh. I really want to live with that diagnosis. They do say I want services. And if I need that diagnosis to get services, give it to me. But it's absolutely as a meal ticket, not as something that helps them understand themselves. You know, you could play devil's advocate, or maybe I will play devil's advocate, and make an argument that the process of discovering one's gender is a complicated process for all children. In which case, what is a gender-creative child? What distinguishes a gender-creative child? I would like to start this by saying, I hope every child gets to be gender creative. The gender creative child is hopefully every child. And it is a child who is given the space to think about, reflect, explore, sometimes challenge gender in all its shades and hues and put together a gender mosaic that is unique to them. And we hope in what we call the gender affirmative model, that every child will have the opportunity to be a gender-creative child. More specifically, when we hone in on what's happening today among children and the issue of gender, it refers to those children who are either saying, you know what, folks, I'm not the gender you think I am. And or, oh, and by the way, you know, the social rules for gender, I don't like them, and I don't want to do them. I want to do it my way. It feels much more authentic. It's my true gender self. And the gender-creative children are the ones who are allowed to exercise those powers in the same way that we do that around other parts of our personality, of ourselves. So I will say... I lifted the term gender creativity from Winnicott's work. And so it's a borrowed term based on Winnicott's notion of the unfolding of the self, that we have a true, true self, a false self, and then we use individual creativity to weave together ourself, and that gender creativity is that process of weaving together the gender self. And also recognizing at times that you may have to construct a false gender self, either for protection from harm or because you're not ready to share it with others, but that you know if you do that there's this nice authentic self underneath it uh, that you can hold on to. 
And so the gender creativity is also the process of holding on to that self no matter what. So then what, is, what distinguishes a transgender child? A transgender child is under the category of gender creative child. It's one of the iterations of a gender creative child. The transgender child is the child who focuses on gender identity. And basically, through action, word, feeling, and relationship, lets people know my gender identity does not match the sex assigned to me on my birth certificate. So that's how I use the definition of the transgender child. It's about gender identity. That may also come together with a wealth of uh, variation in gender expressions as well. But the transgender child is about identity. Some people use it very differently. Some people use it as I use gender creativity. So these are essentially my categorizations shared by many others. But I will say that others would give you a very different answer about what's a transgender person. Anybody who, cha- who challenges gender. So then what does it mean when a child wants to undergo what you call social transition? What social transition is a child switching from the gender that that child has been living in because everybody thought the child was that gender to the gender that child says is more authentic. The traditional, and I'm now saying traditional, transgender social transition is somebody we all thought was a boy says, I'm a girl, changes their name, changes their pronouns, changes their mode of dress and appearance, and lives full-time girl and says, this is this is the real me. Uh, up until adolescence, there's nothing but social transition. There's no medical transition. Nothing can happen before puberty. So that w- would be the traditional social transition. And I say traditional because there's a number of little ones who are now saying, I am not the gender that you think I am, but I'm also not the opposite one either. So, for example... I am working with a child now, and the parents were really trying to get to the root of it because the child was an enigma to them. They couldn't figure out if their child was a boy or a girl. So every morning they would say, so are you a boy or are you a girl? Which pronouns do you want us to use? And they were open to whatever, but they wanted some clarity. And the child was getting more and more stressed. So they brought the child to me so I could say. And we discovered in the first session, this child said, look, I'm a rainbow kid. And if you want to know what pronoun to use, just use rainbow kid. Meaning, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not declaring male, I'm not declaring female, I'm everything. So for this cross-section of this child's life, this child is making a social transition from boy, which would reflect sex on this birth certificate, to rainbow kid with neither male nor female pronouns, and and ironically, a gender-neutral name given to this child at birth could flow in any direction around gender tropes and names. But this, too, is a social transition. How did the parents deal with... How did the parents deal with that happening? How did they think about it? But also, concretely, how did they adjust to this child's request to be called a rainbow kid? I will say this is an incredible... Uh, pair of parents. They're adjusting quite well 
And it's relieved their anxiety, ironically, of having to pin it down. Life was spiraling out of control. The more they were trying to be open, to ask their child, it's not easy for parents to live with that ambiguity around gender. So there's stresses there. Uh, and mostly what they're saying is, it's very hard to use the pronoun rainbow kid. They're okay about uh, having a child who loves to wear dresses over corduroy pants, loves sparkles, uh, for a period of time had a very negative relationship to their body parts and is now basically feeling somewhat better about their body parts since people stop asking, who are you? And so it's not easy for them. But they are of the set of parents I call gender-creative parents. They're basically saying, if this is what our child needs right now, we're here. And we, we're trying to figure out how to negotiate the world. But they, I just talked to the mom yesterday. She said, we have picked the most wonderful public school ever in San Francisco for this child. We couldn't have asked for more in terms of their, them embracing their rainbow kid. And this kid is just happy, so happy at school so far. And this kid's not always happy. <laughs> so, yes, I would say you asked a very important question, which is for all parents who have a child who is pushing the gender grain, it's not necessarily an easy path. And if you say, I'm fine, it's all good, you're sweeping some feelings under the rug. And so a lot of the work is, is to get to all the different layers, conscious and unconscious, of the responses, the feelings, so that you can come out at the end of the day feeling, okay, I can accept my child and help open those pathways. Because as we all know, if you bury things, they fester and they'll come out to the back door. So is there a difference between the children who will, as you just described, um, will socially transition and maybe not require or ask for medical intervention between those children and the children who will want to go further and pursue hormonal treatment and medical surgeries? There may or may not be a difference in essence between these two groups of children. What may be the same about them is they are insistent, persistent, and consistent in their affirmed gender identity and it will remain stable over time. Some of those children, youth, or adults will basically say, I don't need to change my body in any way. Gender is between my ears, not between my legs, and I'm perfectly happy with the body I have. So thank you very much. No medical interventions. I will continue with simply social transition for the rest of my life. And they live accordingly. Other people would say I'd rather die. And I might, in fact, become suicidal if I don't have the opportunity to bring my body in alignment with the gender I know I am. And those are the people who will go through medical transitions. But that first group is authentic, is authentically transgender as the second group. And indeed, there are many feminist writers who are pushing against the medical interventions as simply being a social construct of how we do male and how we do female and forcing people to mutilate their bodies accordingly. When why couldn't we just move to a cultural understanding that there are penis-embodied people, vagina-embodied people, 
Most of the penis-embodied people will identify as male, but some won't. And they whoever, and that's just as real as if uh, being a penis-embodied girl as a vagina-embodied girl. One is not the real girl, and the other one a wannabe. But we just have these different embodiments. This is an issue, I think, with infinite amounts of complexity. And I think for that reason, I, I, I want to capitalize on the clarity that is available to us. And one of the things that you speak to pretty clearly is the difference between what you call persisters and desisters. And I think this is an important point because you often hear about these children that is said, oh, well, it's probably just a phase. Can, can you speak to the difference between one group and the other? I'm going to speak uh, to the difference between the kids who are insistent, persistent, and consistent versus the kids who evolve. And I'm going to start by saying I would invite everybody, parents, pediatricians, mental health professionals, please delete phase from your vocabulary when talking about kids' gender development. It may be the cross-section that you're seeing, and it's as real as real it can be, and it may morph into something else. And children are, you know, move, they are moving boulders in themselves because that's what child development is about. But at that cross-section, you are learning about that child gender as you know it then. When you say it's just a phase, it implies that there's something bad about it and they'll get over it. Because when we use in child development, it's just a phase. We use it for terrible twos. We use it for tantrums. We use it for biting. We use it for spitting. None of which we say, oh, I hope my child continues with that. So it, underneath that is always the hope it will go away. So what I would say is, yes, there may be evolution. And that's why when we're trying to understand children's gender, it's not just at one point in time. We want to see it across time. And I uh, take great issue with the persister desister data. I think it's flawed data. I think it's flawed methodology. And I think it's flawed conclusions. And I write about that in The Gender Creative Child. That when I first reviewed all of that research, I, I just, my gut reaction was, what are we talking about? These are apples and oranges. You're taking a group of kids who are exploring their gender expressions and then lumping them with the kids who are exploring their gender identity. And you're saying that we can't tell one from the other of those kids. And if we lump them together, a number of those kids are not going to grow up to be transgender. And I think, duh, they never started out transgender. And we can tell that if we separate out gender identity from gender expressions. Not to a fault, but there are clear markers that differentiate the two groups. So there are some kids who, as young as 18 months, will begin to express the clarity about their gender identity. And this is what I call our apples, our youngest cohort of transgender people. And they are consistent. It's not one point in time, but it stays and it stays and it stays. And there's persistent. They don't let up on it unless they are being squelched. And they, then they either repress or suppress it. And they're insistent. They can speak with very loud voices. And they might even be perpetrated in their expression of their cross-gender self until somebody finally hears them. There's a couple of other things about those kids. They will typically, not always, 
but they will typically say, I am a fill in the blank, opposite gender or mixed gender, rather than sometimes I wish I were a. And it is a clear demarcation that I am a versus I sometimes wish I were. And the last piece, those two more pieces. The kids who are our young apples often don't like their bodies. They are upset and they want to know, can you put me back inside and have me come out all put together in the way I should be? Or why did God make a mistake and have me come out a girl when I'm clearly a boy? I thought God never made mistakes. You hear that so much around that group of kids. And the last thing is, around their gender expressions. It's not just play, it's serious work. So for a little boy who goes into a sister's room to steal her clothes so that he can wear them, the little apple, the transgender child, may not go for the princess dress. He's gonna go for the school clothes. He doesn't want to be fabulous. He just wants to be the girl, like his sister's the girl, every day going to school. And even when you watch the, the play in a in my consultation room, the play is very different. It's, uh, there's almost like, uh, can you, can I deliver this message through my play? Do you hear me now? So there's some urgency, sometimes even some anxiety around it. Not because they're anxious about who they are necessarily, but they're anxious that nobody's getting it and somebody's going to tell them they're wrong or bad. And because they've already internalized something that people are having stares. And our, our other kids, the, the D sisters, they often are saying, I wish I were rather than I am. They are fabulous in their play, so they might steal the princess dress and then stuff it with socks and say, don't I look terrific? And they are not unhappy about their bodies. And indeed, the, the research does show that a number of those kids are going to grow up to be gay or lesbian and they're exploring their gender on their way to discovering their sexuality, but it's not a given, not all of them will. So I think this could be very helpful to parents if they pay close attention and listen to the words coming out of their child's mouth. But obviously, even with this kind of insight, parents still come to you a lot because their, their child is acting in a way that they don't understand and they want your help in determining what is what is happening, what is going on with my child, and also what what do we need to do? Which brings me to wanting to ask you about transitioning and how it is that you, first of all, help parents understand what's going on, but more specifically, how it is that you help them evaluate whether this is someone who is going to need or want to change, to transition, to maybe go all the way, and, and frankly, whether that would be in a child's best interests. I want to start by saying that work with parents is the most important part of the work in working with kids who are exploring, questioning, stressed or distressed about their gender. And many times I will only work with parents exactly around the issues you just brought up around their confusion, their angst and their desire to do the right thing. And what I will say about that is the vast majority of parents love their children. I take that as an assumption. And I take it as an assumption that the vast majority of parents have every intention of supporting their children. And that is the way they will come to me, either alone or with their child. However, how they're supporting their children may not be in their child's best interest. 
And so a lot of work with parents is, first of all, to start out with them, both as the experts and the concerned people, and what they're seeing in their child, and what they can't get in focus. And that that's the first step. And that's a really important step, particularly because if there's more than one parent, they're not always on the same page. And so if you have two different lenses, they sometimes don't blend together well. So that that kind of dialogue is extremely important. Because as I said, this is anxiety provoking, particularly in a culture who's going to blame them for letting their girl get a buzz cut, for example. And so they, and they've got grandparents breathing down their necks, perhaps, or the grandparents are sometimes the most, you know, accepting open people because they're one step removed and they've been around the corner many times. But mostly we can say that parents are coming in because they want a third eye, a third set of eyes to help them. Now, sometimes they'll come in because they want me to fix it and make their child quote-unquote normal. And I have to be very clear in terms of we're going to have a collaborative process here. What I can offer you is my expertise in getting the child in focus. And I'll just tell you what I see. And then we can figure out what to do about it. And at that's the point where I might then start seeing a child to get to know this child. And to, first of all, start from the major dictum of the gender affirmative model. If you want to know a child's gender, it's for them to say, not for us to tell. Problem being the translation tools. That's where the complexity comes in. Uh, a child may not be able to articulate this. A child may be in a muddle about it. A child may be afraid to say it. And we may not have the ability to hear it, to see it, or to know what they're saying means, which is where my psychoanalytic training comes in beautifully in terms of really being able to use those translation skills to decipher from the surface to the depths of what's happening here and put it together. And when we get in answer to the last part of your question, so how do you decide on a social transition? If the child isn't been insistent, persistent, consistent, it has been stable over a period of time. If the child is expressing distress or stress that nobody is listening and it's very hard to be living in the wrong gender, if the child is showing symptoms of that stress, if the child is saying, I am versus I wish I were, and if the child is, can be, you know, is very clear in their narrative, I am a girl, and when I get to be a girl full time, life is going to be so much better. And if the parents are seeing it the same way, and then we have to look at the safety of the environment, at that point, we can say, I think the social transition would be beneficial and might even alleviate some of the symptoms of stress we're seeing now. And if you're living in a community where it's not safe in the world out there, then you create a circle of safety where you start. And with an understanding that you may not take it on the road yet, but it's not because there's anything wrong with you to the child, but we're helping that world learn. And sometimes we have to put a Harry Potter invisible cloak around ourselves just for safety reasons, but we're working on it. So that's when you would do a social transition. But what do you say to parents who may have the best intentions and have every wish to support their child, but who nonetheless feel like, but, but, but my 
my child's too young to know his or her gender. Why don't we just give it some time, maybe wait until he or she is 18, and then let the person decide? Why, why not do it that way? Have you been sitting in my office and listening to parents? <laughs> <laughs> I've just created the script that, that absolutely happens. And that's what I meant about support, not always being in a child's best interest. And I always start with where parents are and ask them you know, to, just to talk to me more about that and how you would see that unfolding. And often what comes out is, yes, um, a genuine desire to wait and see rather than jump in too quickly. Mm-hmm. I respect that. But it's often fear-based. I don't want any of this on my watch. You know, if it's when they're a legal adult, then it, my hands are clean. They've done it to themselves. I won't be responsible for it. And so basically it's flushing that out. And the parent work, I will always say, absolutely, you are the parents. So until your child is of legal age, you will be the authority figures here making the decisions. So let me just weigh it on the scales for you. You could do that. You could just have your child wait. But let me tell you what I know about the risk factors. So here's what I've learned. And I really lay it all out around the risk factors being for anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicidal ideation, attempted suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, school dropout, conduct disorders. That's a hefty risk panel. And I say, you know, this is what we're seeing when we tell kids you're going to have to wait. And I can't say that's true for your child, but I just feel like I'm obligated to tell you those risk factors. That's usually game-changing. What do you you say to parents, though, when they suspect that the gender nonconforming behavior is, quote, due to something else? They say, you don't understand, you know, we got divorced last year, there was a death in the family, or such and such thing happened, and we think that he or she is just acting out. How do you answer that? I first ask them to tell me more. Because they may be onto something. I mean, I do consider parents experts. And they may be having real blind spots and blinders. So I first, I just say, well, tell me your thoughts about that. And that is when I say, I think it would be a good idea for to bring your child in. Because I can't answer that question for you. But I will hold it as a question. And now we need to explore. Might be so. Uh, and what I would say is, nine times out of ten, it won't be so. It's, that's unusual. and But it can be. So, of course, we want to explore everything. We want to leave, you know, kind of no corners unturned. Uh, so if you feel comfortable, and I will say to the parents, if you feel comfortable, uh, I would recommend that as a next step. So I can, I can learn about your child and whether that's so. And if that's so, of course, then we want to treat what is the main stressor, which is uh, distress because of the divorce. Uh You know, it comes up around death of a parent so that, how do I know my child isn't doing it because they lost their parents or they want to become that parent? How do I know my child isn't copycatting because their best friend just announced they were transgender? How do I know it's because uh, my child is an athletic And realizes if I was a girl, nobody would say I have to play soccer and baseball and football. So there's all kinds of how do I know. And yeah, we have to do rule outs. And I think 
there is a misconception that those people who are supporting kids to find their pathways are rubber stampers. And that since we say it's up to us to listen to the children, it just is a 10-minute conversation stamped. Okay, got it. Whoever you say you are, that's it. No, that's a process. Parents need to be included, but sometimes it involves challenging parents and saying, I think you do have a blind spot here and I'm concerned. And one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is how it illuminated that those of us who work with this community and those of you who are more intimately involved in, in helping decide the right path for these children really are taking a very thoughtful, um, disciplined approach to evaluating these children. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you make that evaluation and particularly your emphasis on stages and not ages for readiness for transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, what we have tried to do is develop what we call the gender affirmative packet of assessment and evaluation. And we feel that's very important because the traditional evaluation measures are, number one, very binary. Number two, they're based on pathology. So we've tried to create uh, a... Uh, basically a packet where you can pick and choose as a mental health professionals, interviewing some projective measures, some questionnaires, some, 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 you know, drawings, et cetera, that will be able to get at the heart of this child's gender stresses, but also gender authenticity. So, that's not easy to do, but uh, so mostly I would say the most important part is not anything different that we do in psychotherapy with children, which is to listen, to reflect back, to mirror back, I think is critically important uh, because a lot of kids are suffering from uh, distorted mirroring back to them of who they are, and that doesn't mean like Rogerian just reading back what they said, but as you go along saying, let me tell you what I'm seeing, uh, does that fit? And also making sure if they say, call me she, use she, so that, that's a mirroring. But we are looking for whether a child does have some kind of either a coherent narrative or a coherent that they wrap themselves around, around their gender, that is authentic, realistic, and at the root of it is really as simple as, well, because it's who I am. And I will say that I have, indeed, in those evaluations, come up with situations where gender was a solution to something else. And then have said, we're going to slow down and just address those other issues that are going on. And, and the one thing you would never recommend in that situation is a readiness for any medical intervention, particularly one that's only partially reversible or completely irreversible. But so that, so I wish there was a science. I had an angry father in my office yesterday who they're in therapy. Uh, they have their 14 year old in therapy rather. And the father is really frustrated 
Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful therapist. I know the therapist because he's not getting answers. And it's been six months, and by now you should have an answer. And I know because I've consulted with a the therapist, it's a very complex case. Answers aren't forthcoming yet. There's much more exploration to do. So I want to go back to the her sisters, and let's let's assume that you're working with a child who has passed all the tests, you've ruled out everything that there is to rule out, and this is someone who you think is a candidate, a good candidate for gender reassignment or for transitioning. For those of us who are still learning, can you break down the different treatment options for this child? Walk us through what are puberty blockers, what is hormone replacement therapy, and, and what are the surgical options? I'd be glad to. So we start. I want to back it up. We start out with social transitions, no medical interventions involved. Uh, you know, they say clothes make the person, <laughs> clothes make the man, clothes makes the transgender child, uh, along with pronouns uh, and um, perhaps a name change, but also appropriate gendering. Then you get to puberty. And puberty is often a nodal point for many children who have been questioning their gender. Because before puberty, in many ways we're very androgynous except for what's between our legs, which we keep hidden in clothes, we can really pretty much feel androgynous. But you hit puberty, game's up. Your body is going to now start changing into an adult body with secondary sexual characteristics that are going to stamp you as either male or female. And at that point, a number of kids who are there's two sets of kids, kids who are questioning their gender. They're not sure who they are. And there's the other kids who socially transition when they're six years old. They know who they are. For both of those sets of kids, they can have the opportunity to take puberty blockers. And what puberty blockers do is they simply turn off the spigot of the hormonal influx that creates puberty. And they were originally used, and they still are, for the closest puberty to stop, say, a three-year-old who started going through puberty, and they were taken until there was the more appropriate age for puberty to start, and then withdrawn. So the, the people in the Netherlands discovered, whoa, we can do the same thing around gender and just put a pause on puberty to buy some more time so a child can explore further before that stamp of permanent body changes. So some kids are just taking them to buy more time. Other kids will be receiving puberty blockers for continuity of care. They, they don't need any more time. They already know who they are, and we're just helping them move along so they can keep harmoniously moving in that direction. For both sets of kids, they will stay on puberty blockers for a while, and at the end of that while, and I'll explain the while, they can either go off the puberty blockers or choose to move forward with cross-sex hormones. If they go off the puberty blockers, the puberty that would match the sex assigned to them at birth will, will go in gear within six months. If they decide to go directly from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones, they will not experience the puberty that would match the sex assigned to them at birth. They will go through the secondary uh, sexual characteristic acquisition of the gender they affirm themselves to be. 
So a transgender boy will take testosterone. He uh, will never have gotten a period or grown breast if he was on puberty blockers that were started just as puberty started. And that will be uh, his trajectory. Uh, and the transgender girl will never get a deepened voice, never get um, hair, never smell so bad, <laughs> will be, uh, have the second, will grow breasts and have a different shape, different uh, fat distribution, and will not have a deepened voice, but will have more of a female voice by taking estrogen. There are some kids who never have the opportunity to take puberty blockers, either because they didn't know till later or because they're very expensive. And unfortunately, in terms of class privilege, not everybody has access to puberty blockers. And there's some kids who don't take them because their parents say, no, there's not enough medical evidence to prove they're safe. But so some kids just go straight to hormones, having gone through puberty, and that's a medical intervention that can happen at any time once you've gone through puberty. So those are the hormonal interventions. Then we come to surgeries. So for the typical surgery uh, requested by a transgender boy who has gone through puberty will be chest surgery to remove any breast development that's happened. So there's top surgery. Then there's bottom surgery, which can take many, basically to acquire a vagina, to acquire a penis. So that would be bottom surgery. And there's some people just choose to have their gonads removed so they don't produce any hormones. And that's the only kind of surgery they would have. Some people choose to have they have a uterus, they have a uterus removed. So there's all kinds of reproductive surgeries. And then there's facial feminization surgery that some people have to bring their face more in accordance with their affirmed gender so that they can present better. And those are the major forms of surgery. And for many transgender women who have gone through surgery, I mean through puberty, the other intervention is often uh, electrolysis to remove, to permanently remove, either laser removal or removal through electrolysis to permanently remove unwanted body hair. So those are the surgical interventions. What and then I want to answer about ages and stages. Yes, please. The, in the WPATH standards of care, which were based on the Dutch model, they originally set up ages, appropriate ages. So no younger than 12 for puberty blockers, no younger than 16 for hormones. That has been challenged and reframed so that rather than age 12, puberty blockers should are most appropriate at the stage of puberty when puberty just begins, whether you're eight, whether you're 12, whether you're 11, whether you're 15. The same around hormones, holding it at 16 makes no sense for a child who's socially transitioned at age six, went in puberty blockers at age 10, and wants to just keep flowing in their firm gender. So many of those children of youth are being considered for hormones at age 13, 14, both for continuity of care, but also so they're not out of sync with their peers. 
because everybody else is moving forward. And it's one way of outing somebody if they don't care to uh, be public about their transgender identity is by standing out in the crowd as being the only prepubescent 16-year-old in your high school. So we, that's why we move to stages rather than ages. But what do you say to parents or critics who think, my gosh, we're, it, it, we shouldn't be messing around with nature so much. You know, this, this is going too far. How do you answer those critics or how do you answer parents who have that kind of feeling? Here's how I answer the nature question. I basically say, this is nature. We're not messing with nature. We're just accommodating to nature because gender is a combination of nature, nurture, and culture. And in this case, we're basically trying to meet the nature needs of a child who wants this consolidation of their body. So... I want to separate that from if you have concerns about medical side effects, because that's different, because that's not about messing with nature. That's like in any medical intervention. We always want to know what are the downsides? Uh, what risks are there? Is it worth the risks? And that's a very reasonable question for any parent to ask about any of these procedures. So in this case, I would basically say, we can understand it as matching rather than messing with nature, particularly if we think of this concept called neurological sex, that when we say our gender lies between our ears, not between our legs, it's nature that creates the messages to our minds of who we are, and we're acknowledging that piece of nature, and we now have medical supports to, to make that acknowledgement. And the last thing I say is, let me also go to the other side in which doing nothing is doing something. And if we were to withhold these treatments, let's think of the trajectory for your child. What will that be like for your child to grow up knowing they could have had some help to consolidate their gender, gendered body in a way that they would feel more comfortable in the world and you said no to that? And they can make up for it later, but usually with more extensive surgeries and also with years of discomfort and pain and suffering from their point of view for no good reason. Because they're going to do it anyway. They just had to wait uh, until it was their watch. So think about that as the risk factor. So that's where we open the discussion. Some parents absolutely factor that in. Say, you know, I never thought of that. Other parents just say, no way. And then we have to help build a use gender resilience until they can get to the, uh, the age where they can make their own decisions. I want to go back to culture, though, because for me, that's where things can get a bit tricky. You, you factor culture into your way of conceiving of gender, but to play devil's advocate, as I like to do, in some cultures, gender is thought of in binary terms for culturally congruent reasons. Um, I think that you had an example in the book of Antonio, whose father is Sicilian and who objects to this kind of um, intervention and this way of thinking. Within the gender affirmative model, um, is there room for these kinds of more um, binary cultural beliefs? Or within the, the gender affirmative model, are we silently 
judging those cultural beliefs, thinking of them as behind or not as evolved. What, what do you say to that? I would say I'm simply encouraging themselves to expand themselves. So it's not an either or. There can be room for both. Uh, but it's a human rights issue to not discriminate against those people who don't fit in to whatever that cultural trope is. So that it's part of humanity, not just culture bound, that we have gender nonconforming people. They are in every culture if we let them express themselves. Uh, they show up in the animal kingdom, they show up in the human kingdom. And I would say, I would use the analogy as a left-handed person of left-handedness, that in many cultures and historically in this country, left-handedness was considered an aberration that needed to be fixed. It's sinister, it's evil, all kinds of things. So people were prohibited from using their left hands who were left-handed. And that was not in those people's best interests and can create all kinds of physical problems, including death at an earlier age, is what has been discovered. Because you get in accidents all the time when your, your other hand just doesn't quite work as well. So there, I would say in every culture around the world, I would push for a room for left-handed people, even though they're a small minority. And I would push for gender diversity, but not say you have to throw out any of your cultural understandings. You just have to expand them to make room for diversity. Well, that's what I would say. You know, I think a lot about, especially after reading your book, I think about how we can make the world better for gender-creative children. And in particular, I wonder about their allies or their future allies. And it makes me think of a story that I promised ends with a question. I was in Fire Island this last weekend, and I had the chance to see... I'm, I'm a fan of the show RuPaul's Drag Race, and I had a chance to see one of my favorite drag queens, uh, Detox. And she performed at a small venue out, so outside by a pool. And in the first row, there was a mom with her son who had to be no more than eight or nine years old. And as Detox, a drag queen was performing, she came up to this child and sort of teased him and danced with him. And, and the child sort of reacted in kind and seemed to enjoy it. And after the show, I found out from someone who knows the mom and knows Detox that the mom in the audience and the son are actually good friends of, of Detox, the drag queen, and that this, this boy has known Detox for a long time and has introduced Detox to his friends and loves her. And I thought to myself, that kid is going to turn out to be one of the coolest, most open-minded kids on the block. And, and so my question to you is, number one, if you think, if you think there's reason for me to, to believe that, but more broadly, what I really want to ask you is, what can we do to raise cool, open-minded children who can go on to be even if they're not gender nonconforming themselves, who can go on to be the allies and the, the friends and supporters of our gender-creative children? I think it's a critical question, and it's actually a simple answer. We can be open-minded and expansive, and the more we do that, the more we can pass that on to the children, and at the same time as a feedback loop, we can learn from them. I am shocked by the number of people that are often male psychiatrists 
who basically come out very strongly that we are doing great harm to these children by allowing them to socially transition, that actually some of these transgender children are actually gay and we're forcing them into a transgender solution and it'll forego them ever being able to explore their gay selves. And my answer always is, have you ever sat in a room with a transgender child and had a conversation? Because that might turn you into an ally in a way that you aren't now. So I would say, let the adults tell their story to the children and play with them and, and, and model the kind of gender expansiveness. But also let the adults learn from the children because they're way ahead of us. I think when uh, I watch the children, they're often having such an easier time than the parents in a school when one of the child socially transitions. And they go on with their day as long as they get a reflection back that this is okay, and as long as there's books to be read, stories to be told about gender in all its iterations, and that it's not about a particular child, but it's about all of them. There is a wonderful film that was uh, made recently, it hasn't been released yet, by Gender Spectrum in the Bay Area. And they went into a, a public school, and they did a, a program throughout the year with the teachers, with the administration, with the parents, and with the kids around gender expansiveness. And hearing some of the little kids talk about gender, and they know it's about them, it's not just about other people, makes me believe these kids will certainly grow up to be allies, but they've experienced allies all around them in terms of the teachers who were as gender creative as anybody could be with every child in the class. So I hope that everybody gets to see that film and says, I want to be like those teachers. I want to be like those kids. I want to be like those parents uh, because it was so moving. But I think the kids have to know that the adults are watching their backs and are advocating for them and are not just saying, get used to it, it's the way it is. And we have to know that those kids know more than we do. Do you, do you ever work with a gender creative adults? And specifically what I mean is adults who, because they grew up in a different time, didn't, they, they didn't grow up in an era of openness and expensiveness like the one that we're creating now. And maybe who at a much later age are discovering that the gender they've been living is not their true gender. Do, do you ever work with those folks in your practice or, or know what their journey is like? I absolutely do work with them. And they have a different journey in that they've woven together a whole adult life that has to be reexamined. And it sometimes affects their relationships with partners, with their children, with their jobs. Uh, and what I hear consistently is envy. And the envy is if only I could have been born in 2010. If only I would have had open pathways to explore this when I was a child, I think I would have had a very different life. But I'm going to seize it by the reins now and make that life happen for me. So again, I have tremendous respect for their ability to, at having a life experience behind them to say, 
I'm switching gears. <laughs> I'm just, this is, you know, I've known this for years, but I'm now really, I can't live another day in this artificial life. Or they say, I didn't know it. I had no idea. I'm just discovering it now. So in some ways, the journey is the same getting in focus who they are and figuring out what they want to do about it. But there's often more grief about the pain and suffering that they've had up to that time or the things they miss out on that the kids who went are getting puberty blockers and then hormones are uh, getting the advantage of. And they are often our greatest allies in terms of the youth. So just for example, yesterday I did a talk for our family's coalition in this area. And it was a mixed group of professionals, parents, and most of the people there worked with or had a young child or a teenager who's either transgender or gender nonconforming. But one of the people in uh, in the group who attended was a transgender adult who had started to transition, well, I would say probably, I'm guessing, in their 40s, who had started in puberty, but backed, up, backed out, and then picked up again in their late 30s, and uh, went back on hormones, and identifies as genderqueer, but masculine identified. And it was that person's words to the parents sitting there who were worried that I thought was more effective than anything I said about the following. Let me tell you, it's a wonderful journey. Don't ever stop your child from taking it. I'm sorry I got stopped in my tracks, but I'm here to tell you that no matter what's hard about it, uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And just hearing it from that person, as I said, I think it was more effective than me going on and on about it. (laughs) I, I don't know what more can be said. And we've taken up a lot of your time. So before we go, Dan, can you tell us what you're working on now? Here's what I'm working on now. First of all, talking about the gender creative child a lot in different places. I am co-editing a book for professionals with Colt Meyer, who is is a a psychologist in Texas, uh, who himself is transgender. And we're putting together an edited volume for clinicians on the gender affirmative model, which should come out in summer of 2017, if all goes well. So that's the major one major focus. I am involved right now in a foresight NIH research grant with UCSF, Boston Children's Hospital, Lurie Children's Hospital, and LA Children's Hospital. And we are doing... Uh, a research study of hormone, of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones longitudinally to look at both medical and mental health outcomes for the kids who are coming to our clinics. So that's in gear, and we are just now in the process of submitting our what we call our baby grant is to look at the prepubertal kids and to see what the developmental trajectories and uh, mental health outcomes are for those children who are prepubertal, whether they go through social transitions or not. But we want to kind of deconstruct the persister, desister data and come up with an alternative for understanding the prepubertal kids. Those sound like exciting projects, and I'll make sure to look out for, well, first of all, the results of your study, but also for that book, which I think is going to be immensely useful to 
therapists. Um, again, the book we talked about today is called The Gender Creative Child, Pathways for Nurturing and Supporting Children Who Will Live, who live Outside Gender Boxes, published by The Experiment. I hope folks will go out and check it out. Diane, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology. Have a great week.